Good morning, everybody. Uh, great to see uh, the building, isn't it, and how it's coming on, and to get that sense of uh, the scale of it. I don't know about you, but uh, if you haven't been around before and seeing the pictures, just realising what an enormous task it is. I think sometimes it, when we were talking about it beforehand, it's easy to think about, oh, we're just, we're just doing a little kitchen. And now you see just this enormous piece of work here and the ramps that are going in and these beautiful cupboards and the kitchen. Um, so you can see why it's ended up, you know, the, the enormous amount of money this is costing. Um, uh, but isn't it brilliant? Uh, um, isn't it worthwhile? So, uh, so thanks, Ernst, for that. And, uh, and also thanks, you may have noticed, uh, Ernst and Mike Lenton have moved this up a little bit and moved this forward a little bit um, to make things a bit easier, which is part of just uh, adjusting to life in this way. And also, have you noticed, uh, um, the beautiful fabrics uh, that Seema kind of gave to put around, and now we've got nice blue fabric underneath as well. So we're just uh, trying to make this uh, an increasingly nice kind of little space to be in uh, over these months. Um, so we're thinking today about this theme of love, this very famous passage from Corinthians is the one I'm going to mostly focus on. I'm just going to move this back a bit because I'm in danger of knocking myself out. Um, so let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this profound and moving passage, one that's familiar to so many of us. Thank you that it's spoken to us over the years and ask now that you would speak to us afresh through this, your living word. Amen. So yeah, this passage from 1 Corinthians uh, 13, really famous passage, often read at weddings. Um, it's all about love and it's often used there as a, an example of marriage and uh, how you love one another. And uh, for anybody of you married here are about to turn to your spouse and go, look, it says be patient, you see? I told you so. That isn't how it works, I'm afraid. <laughs> That's not quite how we're going to use it. Tempting though that may be. Um, obviously, I'm not tempted to do that. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> hadn't thought that one through. Um, <clears throat> but this profound definition of love and I think there's a few different ways I want to look at this this morning. Um, first of all, this is chapter 13. Actually, weirdly, the person who uh, in medieval times put the chapter numbers in, put the 13 in a really odd place, because the end of chapter 12 uh, ends with, and yet I will now show you the most excellent way, which is the start of chapter 13. But they put the 13 after that, so you miss this bit of Paul saying, and now we're going to show you the most excellent way. And chapter 13, as I spotted, uh, comes after chapter 12. Um, I said, I'm good at maths. Um, chapter, I know, it's good, isn't it? Um, chapter 12 is the one all about the body of Christ. And we looked at that the other week. It's all about the fact we've got different gifts, different skills, uh, that we, we work together. But having said that, Paul then goes straight into it and says, but now there's a most excellent way and talks about loving each other. So this is what it, the, kind of the first thing Paul was thinking about with this passage is how do we as Christians love each other? How do we live together? What does it mean to be church? So that's one way that we're going to look at it. But I actually think it speaks more than that. And I think this is appropriate to use it in this way. One of the things I was thinking of is that one of the things we read in the Bible a lot is about what God is like. And in, uh, um, uh, in, in John, uh, 1 John, um, it talks very powerfully, very simply, that God is Love. The one word that's repeated a number of times, what is God like in the Bible? It comes up time and time again, God is love. So what does that look like? And I think this passage starts to unpack 
what does it mean to say that God is love? So we're going to look at it briefly in that way. What does it mean for this passage to read this in light of God is love? And then we've got this idea about that we love each other here in the church. But of course Jesus gave us that great commandment, didn't he? Um, uh, when he was asked what's the greatest commandment, he said, love the Lord your God, and then love your neighbour. What does it mean for us to love our neighbours, to be God's love in our community as we talk about? And this passage speaks to that. But the second part of that sentence in love your neighbour is as you love yourself. And I want to end today, we're going to end just by thinking, what might this passage say to us about our own attitudes towards ourselves? What does it mean to love ourselves? And I think this passage speaks powerfully to that as well. But I'm going to start with thinking about God. What do we mean by saying God is love? And the start of this passage is this great bit about, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. It talks about words needing love for them to have real meaning and not just be loud noises. Actions coming out of love in order to have that deep meaning. And of course, we worship a God who both speaks and acts. One of the great delights is that we worship a God who speaks. He isn't a silent God. He isn't a God who only spoke. He is a God who speaks. He speaks through the Bible. He speaks to us today as we read it through prayers, uh, through poetry, if Katrina's here, through pictures. God speaks. And I think what this passage is saying is that God speaks not because he's cross or because he feels like he's got something important to say or because he wants to just say, look at me, I know stuff. God speaks because he loves. And therefore we know why do we listen to God? Why are his words meaningful? Why are they not just other words out there? Because God loves. In a sense, this is saying, this is what, if you like, validates what God's saying. That this isn't just another sacred text. It's not just another book of wisdom. This is God's love letter. This is God showing that he loves us because he speaks. So when we're thinking, can we trust God? Can we trust what God says? Maybe it's not, is it clever enough? Or it, we trust it because God's saying it because he loves us. It's not just noisy stuff. It because God loves makes it different. And similarly, when God acts, God acts because he loves. He created in order to love. And of course, we see God's acting most profoundly in the sending of his son Jesus. And John 3.16 tells us why he sent Jesus. And the vicar's just walked in to check my sermon sound. That's uh, intimidating. Uh, um, why does... Uh, why did God send Jesus? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. He sent Jesus because he loves. So Jesus' ministry wasn't just another set of profound words or nice kind of things from another holy person. It came out of this deep love. His death wasn't some glorious martyrdom or a political act. It was an act of love. And when we see that, that gives real meaning to why God speaks and why we should listen and why God acts and why we should respond, because God loves. Um, and then this great description of this uh, love is patient, love is kind, that long list that we could spend a, 
a sermon on each of those words. And I'm going to look at them in, in the different ways uh, as we go through the sermon. But just that thing, God is patient. We had that psalm about God being slow to anger. As Paul says here, love is slow to anger. God is like that. He is patient. God is kind. He doesn't get angry. He is slow to anger with us. It's so easy to forget this. And particularly that God, uh, it says here, it, uh, it keeps no record of wrongs. That's what God's like. When we come to confession, the reason we come is because we know God will forgive. And as it says in Scripture, God takes our sin away from us as far as the east is from the west. God keeps no record of our wrongs. When we come to confession thinking, I've got it wrong again, it's the same thing, God doesn't know, God doesn't say, oh no, it's you again. He goes, oh, it's you again. Hey, brilliant, you're back. I'm not thinking about what's gone before. I've got no record of that. We're starting today. It's you, brilliant. Okay, you've made some mistakes. I'll forgive you. Let's carry on. It's never, oh, it's you again. I've still got the list. It's never that because he keeps no record of wrong. And love never fails. God's love never, ever fails us. He never fails. So we can trust his words because he loves us, his actions because he loves us. He is patient and kind, keeps no record of wrong and never fails. And uh, so that's God. I've, I've been doing, trying a bit of reading this, this week, trying to yeah, just understand this better. And I, I was reading, um, it's been on the radio a few times, about Julian of Norwich. I don't know how much you know about Julian of Norwich. Arguably one of... Britain's greatest theologians. She was a nun living at the end of the 14th century in Norwich, hence the name. Um, and she wrote this, this very famous book called Revelations of Divine Love. Now, Julian, she was a nun, um, but she also was an anchoress, which meant she spent an, many, many years, many years, living in one room, never going out, uh, which is a bit of a, you know, okay, that's a, a thing. Um, and she had a window through to the church so she could receive communion and see people, and a, a window to where the other nuns were so she could chat to them, and a window into the street so she could talk to passers-by and, and listen to what was going on. So she wasn't completely detached, but she spent years meditating on God. And I've written, it, it, it's a bit oldy Englishy, so I've done my own translation of it, which I hope is faithful, but this is her reflection on God's divine love from uh, chapter 44. Truth sees God and wisdom beholds God. And after these two comes the third, that is a holy and marvellous delight in God, which is love. Where truth and wisdom are, there is love coming from them both. All is of God's making, for he is endless sovereign truth, endless sovereign wisdom, and endless sovereign love unmade. Our souls are creatures in which God has made these same properties, so that we do that which we are made for. We see God, behold God, and love God, whereupon God rejoices in us and us in God, endlessly marvelling. And as we marvel at God's love, we see God our Lord, our Maker, so high, so great, and so good in comparison to us, that we seem as nothing compared to God. But the clarity and clearness of truth and wisdom makes us see and bear witness that we are made for love in which God endlessly keeps us. And I just thought it was a beautiful passage to, uh, 
just, I'll just leave it with you to reflect on. And that was uh, from uh, yeah, the 14th century, quite a long time ago, but a profound reflection about God's love for us that Paul, I think, is talking about here. But as I say, Paul is primarily, his thinking was about how we get on with each other. What does it mean to get on with each other? And again, these things about if we speak in the tongues of men, of angels, but do not have love, we are just a resounding gong. And I would like to suggest that in the world at the moment, and even within the wider church, there's an awful lot of gongs and cymbals clashing and banging. Sadly, too often, people's speech does not come out of a place of love. It comes out of anger or a wanting to sow that I'm right and you're wrong, or arrogance or pride, and not from a place of love. And sometimes I, I look at how Christians speak about one another and to one another, not necessarily within our congregation, but in the wider church, and it's heartbreaking because this seems to have gone out the window. But this challenge from Paul to say, this is how we should speak, this is what makes our words valid and gives them real depth of meaning that stops them being just noise. And in the wider world, as we think about how we engage with our neighbours, gosh, we need people who speak with love at the moment. You'll be aware just how polarised speech gets. On almost any topic, it becomes aggressive, abusive, and if, you, if you're not on things like Twitter and things, I can ask you don't, it's horrible, um, but it's so aggressive, and it's completely polarised. You're either with us or against us. You either agree with me completely or I reject you fully. I was talking to a friend of mine who's really struggling at the moment for lots of things about this, around the, obviously the issue of Israel and Gaza is really where we're seeing this sharp. And it's just saying there's a, a community leader in their town, not Birmingham, somewhere else, who's done lots of dialogue work and is really into having dialogue with people they disagree with, people of different faiths and cultures, reaching out, understanding, is a, quite a senior person in that kind of world in where they live. But this person who spent years living like that put a thing on Facebook the other day saying, I will disagree and have, I'll have friends with people I disagree with. I will disagree with people and still form friendships. I'm willing to speak about you on anything apart from Gaza. If you don't agree with me, I'll unfriend you. I won't speak to you. And that's where we get into. Where there isn't that sense of love of saying, I fundamentally disagree with you and yet... I will still find a way to love you. At the charity of the feast that I run, where we do this with young people, with teenagers, we have what we call our guidelines for dialogue to try and create the environment, the space to have these conversations. And one of our guidelines that we've struggled with the wording with over the years, it says, uh, we'll respect you even if we disagree with you. And we've grappled with, is respect the right word? And I've come to the conclusion at the moment, I'm thinking, I might want to rewrite it. I think what I want to say is, I'll treat you well even if I disagree with you. I might absolutely disagree with you to the point that I feel uncomfortable, but I'll still make you a cup of coffee if I see you. I'll still, I won't be rude about you. I'll still treat you well. I'll open the door for you if you're coming behind me. I won't slam it in your face. That way of saying, I can still act in that kind of loving way, I can still treat you like that, even if the views you're saying I find particularly difficult. And that's true on a number of things. And there will be times 
when between us as a congregation there are views that we don't agree on. And we've talked about that before, and as Tom has often reminded us, the church has never agreed on things. There's always been things that we disagree on. And Paul's challenge 2,000 years ago was because of this, saying, but we speak in love. Or are our words just noisy and clanging? There's the challenge for us. We, we, uh, we do this. It's a real challenge. But it's also really countercultural to speak like this, to have that attitude that says, we are going to do these things out of love. It's not how the world's working at the moment. It wasn't how the world was working then, or even a bit before. Again, in John chapter 13, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, a new commandment I give you. It's interesting, it's a new one. You need something new. And, and it's a commandment, not a suggestion. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's what he said to his disciples. It's a commandment. I lo love one another as I have loved you. But then he says... By this shall all people know that you are my disciples. Why will they know that? Because it's not how the rest of the world's behaving. And they'll go, what's going on over there? That's different. That must be because they're disciples of Jesus. So living in this way, being like this amongst us here, becomes our witness. It becomes about mission. If we live like this, people whose speech comes out of a place of love, whose actions come out of a place of love, people notice and say, that's something different. That's where I want to be. It's a real challenge because it's not easy. It's really not easy, which is why people don't do it. But the challenge for us, as we receive God's love, that we that that flow out into our relationships with each other here, and then that flows outwards. And as I say, it flows out. And so we look at these little expressions, this little definition about what does it mean to love each other and to love our neighbour, to be God's love in the community. And just as I, before I go on to that, there's another lovely little story. Bishop Anne was reminding us yesterday at a meeting I was at. Uh, St John, who wrote the Gospel of John, there's a famous story, it probably isn't true, but it's a nice story, that when he was very, very elderly and near death, he, would, he couldn't be, he'd be carried out on a, on a mat to preach to his congregation. And, uh, and at the end, he, they would carry him in, and he would look at them, and all he would say is, love one another and that's what he said every week love one another it was so important so what does this look like and again paul pulls out these amazing little this little list be patient with one another with the building work with things as they change even when it's all finished and we go back there'll be a few weeks where it's not quite working because we haven't got used to the new way it is the, the kettle won't quite work. You know, be patient with one another. And as we look outside and loving our neighbour, being patient in this area, which I'm not good at when I'm around here, being patient with the parking, I'm terrible at that. Being patient with the driving, I'm really bad at that. But that's what we're called to be. And, you know, in Britain at the moment, you've probably seen on the news the, the rise in abuse of shop staff and restaurant staff. It's really risen because people are no longer patient. So when you're in a shop or a restaurant and things aren't quite going right, be patient because those shop staff will really notice it because other people aren't being. Be patient. Be patient when you're on the phone and you've been waiting for 45 minutes and finally someone picks the phone up and doesn't know the answer to your question. Be patient with them. They'll notice. 
<laughs> the next one, I've spoken about this many times in this church. Be kind. And as I've said before, if you forget everything else, love God and be kind. That's kind of mostly it as being a disciple of Jesus. Love God and be kind. It doesn't need to get much more complicated than that. Be kind to one another. Be kind to people here. People will notice because there's a lack of kindness. Be kind. Don't be envious. Love is not envious. It's not envious of people over the road who've got a sparkly new building. Other people who seem to do better. People who've got gifts that we haven't got. People who've got things or doing better. Why are we not envious? Because we are loved by God. That's all we need. We've got God's love that never fails. Let's not be envious. Because that's our consumerist society is built on envy. Don't you wish you had this? Don't you wish you had that? If only you looked like this, did this, went there, had that. Let's not be envious. Let's not dishonor others. Gossiping, lying. So easy to do. So easy to do. And it's not self-seeking, this kind of love. It challenges that ego that says, I'm the most important. When we know that God loves us, it's easy to go, hey! And it's like, brilliant. Look at me. I'm loved by God. I must be the most important. No, no, God loves us all. You're, 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 you're wonderful and uniquely made and you're truly lovely. But that isn't the ego saying, I'm the most important. I'm the center of the universe. And again, not easily angered. Linking him with being patient and kind. And it keeps no record of wrongs. We've learned that God doesn't keep a record of our wrongs, but how often do we keep a record of the wrongs of others? But they did this, they did that, they did this, they did that. He said, she said. One of the uh, real challenges of unpicking and working with people around uh, what's happening in Israel and Gaza at the moment, and I've seen a lot of people phoning me up and saying, what should we say, what, what, what do we do about this? And one of the challenges is in, in speaking about that is that the, the history is incredibly complicated, and whatever you say, you say, yeah, but this happened. Someone will say, yeah, but they did that. Yeah, but 10 years ago they did this. Yeah, but 20 years ago they did that. Yeah, but 50 years ago they did that. But 75 years ago the British government did this. But, uh, and it never ends. There's always another story of, yeah, but they did. And at some point, someone has to say, I'm not going to keep a record of those wrongs, I'm going to move forward, which is easy for me to stay san say standing here. But in our relationships and our working, we've got to find a way of saying we move forward. And it does not delight in evil, but re re rejoices in the truth. Go, of course we don't delight in evil, no, but we sometimes delight in a bit of gossiping, in some lies, it's quite easy. And it always protects, always trusts, always hopes and always perseveres. But I just want to say, there's a, this isn't a naive thing. This isn't a, a nice naive, isn't life all jolly and, and it, wouldn't this be fun? The Bible also talks about justice and truth. And this starts off about truth. And that me meditation from uh, Julian Norwich about truth. If we're in a situation of violence or abuse or difficulty, loving... It's not saying, oh, I'll love that person, that means I stay there, that means I don't keep a record of the wrongs. Actually, no, no, justice is important. But love means that we seek justice, not revenge. We seek justice, not an ongoing, lifelong hatred and a consuming thing that destroys us. 
but it seeks justice and it speaks the truth when things are done wrong. That's what love is. It's not naive. And uh, the, the always trust is an interesting one. And I got into a few rows with this many years ago when I used to kind of speak at Christian conferences more than I do now with people saying to me, because I used to say, this is how we should treat Muslims like this. And they're saying, and I kid you not, I've been said a number of times things like, but you can't trust Muslims. You can't trust Pakistanis. You can't trust Indians. You can't trust... And I've been told that by all sorts of different people of different nationalities. And saying to them, I, well, I think you can, actually. <laughs> I, I do think that's quite prejudiced. I think you can. But I wonder whether what Paul's saying here, because obviously some people do let us down. It's not naive. But could our starting point be with any relationship, I'll start by trusting you until proven otherwise. I won't stereotype you and go, well, you lot are untrustworthy, therefore I'm not going to trust you. I'm going to start by saying, I will trust you. And also we learn where that trust goes, doesn't it? I've got some friends who I would trust, uh, you know, with all sorts of things. I'd trust them to look after my family. I'd trust them, you know, really good, trustworthy people. Do I trust them to turn up on time to a meeting? No, of course not. That would be ridiculous. I know what the trust means for that person, but I trust them completely. But I know that actually they're always going to turn up 10 minutes late on a good day. So this is how we live with each other. This is how we live in our community. It's challenging, but we do it because God loves us. And because of us, it flows out and it's transformative and people will notice. And now I just want to finish just with a couple of minutes. This final part that I think speaks to us, and this for some people will be the most important Loving ourselves. Love your neighbour as you love yourself. And we have an epidemic in this country of people who don't love themselves. You look at the issues around mental health uh, and suicide. The biggest killer of young men under the age of, I think, about 25 or 30 is suicide. Huge issues, particularly for young people, around how they view themselves. And that goes on into adult life and, and older life as well. People not loving themselves. And this isn't a narcissistic, hey, I'm the best person in the world, or, or look at me. Uh, it's not talking about that, or I need me time, so I'm going to ignore everybody because it's just all about me. That's not what I think we're saying. It's something much deeper and more profound. But if we look at those characteristics, what would it mean to really have these characteristics for ourselves? Be patient when you get things wrong, cut yourself some slack, love yourself, be patient. We all get things wrong, but we all beat ourselves up. Don't do that, be patient. Be kind to yourself. Whether that means a bit of me time, a bit of a break, if you get the chance, and some of us don't get that chance very easily at times, recognize that. Be kind to yourself. What does a successful day look for you? I got dressed, I ate something, I didn't lose the plot, I went to bed. Well done, you've made it. Because for some people, that's the best day. I got through a whole day without drinking alcohol. That's the first time for months. Brilliant. Be kind to yourself. Cheer. Don't look at all the other days. Recognize that one. Be kind to yourself. Don't think of all the times you get it wrong. Celebrate the days you got it right. What does a good day look like for you? And for sometimes it will be, I got dressed. Or I lay in bed with a cup of tea. That was it. Be kind to yourself. That's what it means. Don't believe the lies about yourself. There's a lot of lies. You'll never succeed. You're not good enough. You're not whatever. 
you'll never do it, you'll never beat that addiction, you'll never be like this. Those thoughts can get in there. Love doesn't lie. But we so easily believe those lies about ourselves. And God wants to say to us, I love you, I don't believe those lies. Love yourself, don't believe those lies. Because they are there, very loud for a lot of people. Don't be angry with yourself. Getting frustrated with ourselves, it's so easy to do. But allowing ourselves to say, do you know what, I've made another mistake. And finally, and for many of us this is a challenge, don't keep a record of all the wrong things you do. And I know many of us can sit there and list all the things that we've got wrong. I can think of all the times, because I'm really bad at this, all the things as a parent that I got wrong. And sometimes I think in my work it's a bit of a defence thing. I know that all the things I've got wrong when I've planned an event, so I know that if someone criticises me, I can come back and go, yeah, but I know loads worse than you do. I keep a record of the wrongs. It's really easy to do. That isn't how we love ourselves. And God says, I don't keep a record of those things. Lay them to one side. Don't keep a record of the wrongs. Learn what it means to love ourselves. And I say, not as an eager thing, not as a narcissistic, but that deep love that comes from God. That love of God that never fails, that comes from God into us and from us out to our relationships and our community. Amen.